neuroscience data when we apply quantum um, concepts to it um, makes it very, very clear that what the ancient people proposed, the spiritual tradition, that we have besides our ego self, there is another non-local self. We call it quantum self, but transpersonal psychologists call it transpersonal self. Spiritual traditions call it spirit. That is very active in us, and that can be measured in our brain. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, Paul is talking to Professor Amit Goswami and Dr. Valentina Onasol. Amit Goswami is a theoretic quantum physicist, lecturer, and spiritual practitioner who calls himself a quantum activist in search of wholeness. A former professor of physics and a prolific author, he has integrated conventional and alternative medicine within the quantum science of health. Valentina Onisor is a practicing physician and a pioneer of quantum integrative medicine. She offers workshops and courses on healing and spiritual transformation in India, North and South America. Professor Goswami and Dr. Onisor are the co-authors of the book Quantum Spirituality. Wow. Wow, wow, is all I can say. You are about to hear the most amazing, deep, mind-expanding, and heart-opening interview I have ever done. Amit Goswami, known worldwide as the Quantum Doctor, and Valentina Onasar, MD, join me today to discuss the solutions for the challenges we face in the world today. We discuss the challenges of immorality in science, consciousness, intuition, why so many people are anxious, depressed, and paralyzed in their ability to help make changes in the world, and their amazing new book, Quantum Spirituality, which is awesome. I only had them for an hour and didn't want you to miss out even a second of their valuable insights, so believe it or not, in the middle of the interview, I had to pee very bad, and I texted Penny in an emergency to bring me a mason jar to pee in, and she held the jar while I peed and conducted the interview. Now, if that's not commitment to producing a fantastic interview, what is? Put your seatbelt on, open your hearts and minds, and get ready for a very powerful expansion of your conscious awareness of what is possible right now for all of us in the world to grow as individuals and make the world a more beautiful place to be. Enjoy. Well, hello, and welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. I'm super excited today. Not only do I get to interview one of my all-time greatest heroes of spiritual development and understanding how quantum physics applies to consciousness and life, but he's got his co-author for his new book, Quantum Spirituality, Valentina. Valentina, can you tell me how to pronounce your last name so I don't make a mess of it? Valentina Onisor. Valentina Onisor, MD. So uh, it, it's a surprise appearance for Valentina. I didn't know she'd be with us, so I feel even more blessed. And uh, Amit, I've read uh, now I have a whole section in my library of Amit Goswami books and now Amit and Valentina books with the new quantum spirituality. So it's not only exciting to have you guys on, but I thought I would share yesterday I interviewed Irvin Laszlo and uh, that was quite an exciting interview. So to have the two of you so close together is is sort of a, a blessing from great spirit. Wonderful to hear that. Yeah. And so... Um, I'm really excited to dive into this w with you. Uh, you know, for the listeners, 
Amit Goswami has many books. What have you got out there, Amit? Like 12 or 15 books now? Yeah, about 12, I think. Yeah. And uh, I've spent a lot of time studying them, and I think they're extremely beautiful. And and uh, I love your work. It's very lucid. You're very good at explaining things. And so it's been a real blessing because as a guy who's been involved in meditation and Tai Chi for a very long time and a regular practitioner and a medicine man and spirit guide, I've had many, many, many of my own experiences. And sometimes when you have deep spiritual experiences, it's hard to put them into words. But the beautiful thing about studying your work is you have uh, created language to explain the unexplainable. So thank you. <laughs> well, thank quantum physics more than me because it is quantum physics that is giving us this language. It's totally yes. a gift. <clears throat> yes, that's beautiful. But, you know, before we actually go any further, because it's really appropriate, right, with what you just said, there's quite a divide in quantum physics with regard to whether or not quantum physics can be applied to things like mind, soul, spirit, and life, where some say that's ridiculous and people, and I've seen a lot of criticism of Fred Allen Wolf out there by some scientists for doing that. And so how, how do you reconcile that divide within the scientists in quantum physics itself? The, the divide is quite natural. The fact is that quantum physics was discovered in terms of finding out the movement of material objects when they are the submicroscopic elementary particles that make up matter. So naturally, there would be from the scientist side, the physicist and the chemist, the hard scientists, they would naturally feel a little bit proprietary. That's perfectly natural. I don't at all blame them. On the other hand, when quantum physics was discovered, we discover an equation that applies to single objects. And these single objects are uh, material objects to be sure initially, but the point is this, that within scientific materialism, the idea that matter is everything, we cannot find any explanation of how to make it the single object equation into a science. In other words, what I'm saying is that although quantum physics is extremely successful in predicting the behavior of a very large number of objects, as in physics and chemistry, the real purport of quantum physics also is different one too. There is the multiple objects, many, many objects, and quantum physics becomes a repetitive science for that one. But for the single object, quantum physics is pointing out from the beginning that, look, there is something here, and you have to look into it. People just refused to look into it. It showed up as Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You realize that there is a measurement problem. How does this object of possibility become a, an experience of actuality? And then finally, we found that really does have both aspects of experience. For Newman, uh, the great mathematician, showed us that when you consider measurement, how the quantum possibility object becomes actuality, we cannot do it without putting ourselves, this object, into the equation either. And then finally, we found that this whole domain of possibility where these quantum waves of possibilities reside, that domain 
is a domain of oneness. If two objects interact, they become one. So that domain is not only a domain of potentiality for objects, it's also a domain of potentiality for oneness or consciousness or subject. And this is how consciousness became a part and parcel of that quantum physics, which is the quantum physics of the single object. So right. you know, materialists do quantum physics, which is applied to many objects, and we do quantum physics, which is applied to single object. And then we have creativity and all this consciousness stuff into quantum physics. And why does the materialist object to it? It's opening up quantum physics, opening up for the first time in human history, a scientific approach to consciousness, scientific approach to spirituality. And then the rest of it, you know, it took me some time, but I have now proven everything, all the objections that materialists initially raised, like how can the brain become quantum? Uh, and in the process, I have also solved the problem how what's the different piece between life and non-life, um, how we cognize. So many, many questions are being answered by using this avenue that quantum physics has opened for us. If you were in the yeah. true spirit of science, then you would love it because there was no hint looking at the physics the way Newton did, the way uh, Einstein did. There was no hint at all of however we find a way to tackle with the science of consciousness. Quantum physics gives us a science of consciousness in a platter provided we look at quantum physics of the single object. Yes, and I'm quite, I'm pretty sure it was Einstein that said the field is the sole governing agency of the particle. And in this equation, it seems to me that consciousness would be the field that's directing the particles that creates the matter, including our bodies. Beautifully put. And indeed, consciousness is the field, except that um, I don't encourage um, you to use the image of the field because people will again get the idea that consciousness is an object. It is a field which is um, not only a field for objects but also for subject. So right. it's that in that is that is really consciousness in its aspect of both subject and object. It's a different field than we normally think of a field as an object. And wouldn't Bell's theorem? of non-locality relate itself to that which is subjective? Um, Bell's theorem is, has been very helpful. Um, the initial idea was Einstein, Podolsky, Rosen idea. That's mm -hmm. sometimes paradox, but it's not really a paradox. Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen showed that if two objects interact, they become non-local. They are capable of communicating instantly without a signal. Of course, if you think about it, we can only communicate without a signal with ourselves. So it's obvious the two objects have become one thing, one object. This is oneness. This is what I was talking about, potential oneness. So in this way, APR had a very good, um, wonderful new insight, but nobody knew how to verify this insight. So what Bell's great contribution to physics was, that he found a kind of a, not an equation, but an inequality, which could be used and was used by Aspey and his collaborators to verify this idea. Or is there non-local communication in the world? Can ob two objects, two quantum possibility objects, if they interact, 
do they actually become one so that even if one of the objects move very far away from the other object, there is instant communication between them without signal. How do you prove it is without signal? You prove it by showing that it is faster than light communication. And this is what Aspe was able to demonstrate, not by having direct communication, that would be very difficult, but by showing that Bell's inequality is indeed violated. Right. Yes. And, you know, just from my own inner investigations, and I work with my soul a lot, and thank you very much for your book, The Physics of the Soul. I not only read it, I studied studied it thoroughly and probably have been through it multiple times because I created a model for the soul that I teach my students, and I was practically orgasming as I was reading your book because your what you shared in the book was directly in parallel with the model that I developed for my students and teach through my institute. Mm-hmm. But the point I'm leading to is wouldn't what we've just heard you describe in 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 Bell's theorem, non-locality, et cetera, to me that seems to be not only consciousness at work, but the source of intuition itself. Yes, it is. Because this this consciousness then is the uh, ground of all potentialities, not just material potentialities, but our mental potentialities, our vital potentialities, living potentialities, even the intuitions, archetypal potentialities. So if we look at consciousness, the potentiality of all our experiences, then we indeed get into all these interesting questions like soul and uh, similar objects. And wouldn't wouldn't the the non-local field that we're talking about correlate to Wu Qi in Taoist philosophy? Um, well, no. the The philosophical foundation of this non-locality, non-local consciousness, or oneness, is of course the spiritual, mystical experience of people who are called mystics, you know, like Jesus and Buddha. But they are really not mystics; that the misnomer. They are spiritual scientists. They are con- scientists of consciousness in, in yeah. my opinion. So the reason I'm asking that is because, you know, in, in if you look at the Tao, there's the Tao that can't be spoken and the Tao that can be spoken. So to me, the world and the universe that we see and our relationships are the Tao that can be spoken and the non-local field would be the Tao that can't be spoken, which would correlate to Wu Qi and the created world would be Tai Chi? Uh, actually, um, Paul, the quantum science can speak about this Tao that we discovered, the non-locality oneness that we discovered in quantum physics, because this we can measure, right? So okay. this Tao we actually can speak of. And then there is beyond that, there is a Tao that we cannot speak of. Indeed, such a thing also exists. It's common in Vedanta philosophy as well. Um, and most spiritual philosophies have the concept of a Tao that cannot be spoken. So that still exists, but we are not concerned about it because that we cannot deal with in science. Science right. is made only of the Tao that we can speak of, and we are very happy that this science exists because we are now discovering it. And really, believe me, so many phenomena that previously could not be explained you are already familiar with my work, and every day we are discovering new ways of looking at phenomena that could not be explained before. 
Could we say that the Tao that can't be spoken is that which exists behind the zero-point field or that which is measurable or, or behind the Planck constant? No, behind, the, behind everything that we can think of. It really cannot be spoken, so we cannot even speculate what it is. I see. So it's... it's it is something, it's, it's something that only mystics who have experienced the Tao that can be spoken of, they have said that even beyond this we have gone, but we cannot talk about it because there is nothing to speak about. They're called the great void and stuff like that in Buddhism. In Hinduism, it is called consciousness without qualifications. So everybody agrees that we cannot talk about it. And since yes. everybody agrees with that, there's no reason for us to even think about it because if you cannot talk about it, you cannot think about it either. Yeah, I've had many experiences of of going back there and I've looked into it because it is quite baffling. In fact, I didn't even know if I was alive or dead. And I found uh, people that had experiences like I've had that basically described because you, because there's, you're in a state of non-duality, you can only talk about the experience as you entered and as you left that state. Yeah, you cannot really talk about anything there. You can just talk about the entry and exit. Exactly right. You know, I, I'd love to hear from each of you uh, how you, well, for you, Amit, how did you make the jump from quantum physics as a theoretical physicist into, you know, the spiritual expression of it all? What, what, what was the, what propelled you to go from being a theoretical physicist to what I would call a spiritual teacher? And then, uh, Valentina, how did you get from being a medical doctor to to uh, teaching deep spirituality with Valen? I mean, with uh, Amit, because that's quite a, a departure from a standard medical model. <laughs> for both of us, because you know, for me, I was a staunch materialist physicist. All my work was uh, scientific materialism, except for some four or five years with my uh, father in my very early age. I don't remember of any really spiritual teachings that I have ever received before um, my own involvement with quantum physics. So what happened was that I went to a conference to give a talk and felt very jealous of all the wonderful, brilliant people who are giving better talks, better ideas, and better attention. I became very jealous. And then at the end of the evening, I went outside, and all of a sudden this thought came to me that why uh, do I live the way I was living? Why do I live this way? And at once the conviction came that I don't have to live this way. There is a way I can live where my belief system and the way I live would be synchronized, would be integrated. So I became a very um, avid searcher for this integration. I took it very seriously. And then, Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you did. <laughs> then one thing led to another, and eventually I saw a dream in which I saw my father again, and he threw a snake at me, and you know, in Umian symbology, that means transformation. So I, I interpreted transformation as spiritual transformation because he was spiritual. So I started looking into spirituality. And that's it, spirituality and quantum physics, the two wings together work miracles at me. I was just, you know, what can I say? How these things happen after that is a series of synchronicities that played in my life, you know, those meaningful coincidences that Carl Jung discovered. 
Sure. Sounds like a man following his soul path. Yes, literally. Yes, and that's, uh, that's how I do it too. Hi. I think you're all aware that we need all hands on deck to make the changes we need to make in the world to bring balance and sustainability. There's no way any of us can do that if we're eating poorly, not feeling, thinking, or performing well. And high-quality organic nutrition is an essential component of a healthy, vital, energized life. I love all Organifi's products, and I'm sure you will too. They have a great line of easy-to-use, tasty, nutritious superfood drinks, protein powders, probiotics, and more. Take a few minutes to check them out, try them, and you'll see why my family and I love them. Go to Organifi.com, that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, and at checkout, use the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 20, to get your 20% discount. To get to know Drew Canoli, the founder of Organifi, listen to my podcast number 64, Drew Canoli, UBU, and I think you'll be really impressed with the values that Drew lives and the example that he leads by and his amazing book, UBU. Enjoy, Organifi, and let me know what you think. Lots of love. I'd love to hear hear your story, Valentina. All right. So I grew up in a family of doctors and priests, and also in the communist time in Romania, in Europe. And uh, in that time, uh, even now, a little bit, but especially in that time, spirituality and anything which had to do with that, it was like voodoo a little bit. But still, since I was very, very small, I, I think I was a kind of kid which was very... Uh, hungry for knowledge and for integration, actually, since very early age. And I was really like studying anything which was falling in my hands, which were, again, a lot of medicine, a lot of spirituality of various types already. And then uh, eventually things uh, moved very quickly after, I think I was 17, when I discovered a very good, uh, genuine yoga tradition, which uh, was very complex, kind of uniting also Tibetan practices and Christian esotericism and like very, very genuinely created. And that together with my medicine calling, which was very clear towards healing and towards integration. So that they just, they just went from hand in hand. So I am specialized in family medicine. So both in allopathy and also in a few of the traditional paths of medicine, acupuncture, Ayurveda, and a few others, more secondary and more a little bit, you know, less known. Uh, but they never, they never were opposite to me. Like this, looking for ways of healing in a deeper way. I was always looking for that, and even expressing my disappointment to my parents, which were doctors, and seeing where they were just simply stuck, not going further. And we had a lot of debates, of course, all all these years until now. Now, when they they see what I was, what I was wanting from them and uh, then again as I was going through together with the with the spiritual path which I was on and also together with the medicine studies which were never finishing it was continuing through a lot of synchronicities and people coming in my life and of course life which is giving the the tests which are required for us in relationships and everything they kind of they were really all together which uh, 
eventually also led to encountering Professor Gusmami four years ago in India, where um, somebody was inviting me to meet Professor Gusmami exactly in the idea of creating a university, which was supposed to happen at that time. And the beauty of the thing is that immediately we clicked and we saw how, how whatever I was coming with was very much in synchrony and harmony with um, what he was bringing. And immediately we started working together and then also we kind of created the nucleus and now we have a small team around which is really giving such a feeling of family and a lot of meaning just falls in place and things blossom very, very quickly. So I'm happy for that, very happy. And now after four years, we see this university which is happening in India again. So kind of four years ago was already the, the idea for which we met. And now after four years of circling the earth and doing various activities, it's happening and it's bringing us back in India to do this project. It just feels wonderful. Well, that's awesome. Now, this next question, just give me a second to to uh, lay it out on the table for you. Okay. And then and then uh, I'll I'll ask you for your opinion. I think it goes without saying that we have a real challenge on our hands with regard to the destruction of nature and natural resources and a lot of greed and corruption that comes from what I call corporate religion, all the way to our education systems, banking systems, political systems, medical systems, choices of how we use energy, extreme environmental toxicity, corporate hijacking of people's minds and personal data, and much more. We know have we, we, I don't feel we have governments at large. We have corporate headquarters. There seems to be a seemingly never-ending stream of so-called scientific evidence to support everything most integral thinkers have clearly ad- identified as real problems in the way we're living, managing our personal, interpersonal, social, political, and international relationships. If morality is a code of conduct that is life-affirmative, it seems that both religion and scientists caught in the scientific materialist paradigm have lost touch with the golden rule and Hippocrates' dictum first do no harm. I'd love to hear your opinion about how we can get morality back into science. Yes, this is a very, very important question, and I'm so glad that today we can talk about it in an interview, which will find many, many listeners eventually. Um, Morality is what we have lost. We have, under the ages of scientific materialism, which, by the way, is not only corporations, but also pushed by the great higher institutions, learning institutions of America and elsewhere. They're all publicizing and propagating uh, what can be called the teachings of false prophets. There is no such thing as scientific materialism uh, as a valid science. Matter is everything is as unvalid as can be, which is proven every day by the fact that we are conscious. We have a subject beside the science, which is a purely a science of object. So that having said, this science validates all the human experiences, including the experiences of our subject or self, and the totality of our experience, not just the material experience. So what happens is that as soon as you validate, the all the experiences, which include, as psychologists know, like Carl Jung, we had a personality theory already that we not only have the sensing personality, but also thinking personality, feeling personality, and intuitive personality. Yes, four functions of consciousness. And the intuition through intuition, we get this value. 
Now, this is the idea that put forth by the races in India 7,000 years ago, the races, uh, Tutsiers in China, Lao Tzu and others, and then in Middle East, uh, the great Kabbalistic traditions, uh, in the Buddhist tradition that flourished in China and Japan, so and, and also the native traditions of many countries which we are discovering, which were simultaneously going on with the world that we knew about, but the worlds in America, South America, and North America, shamanistic cultures, they all knew about these intuitions and how the values come to us, including truth. Truth is absolute, and all archetypes have a something of an absolute kind, the truth value to them. And this is why they are essential for human beings to flourish and develop. They are part of that infinite potentiality that we sometimes talk about as a quantum concept. Part of that quantum uh, infinite potentiality, the main part of it, the vital part of it, the transformative part of it are these moral values. And that we have forgotten. So what can be more sad then having forgotten the basis of humanity, the basic values that drive human evolution, and is very active right now, thank you, in spite of the scientific materialists and their tendencies of forgetting everything and destroying the civilization we have built for 7,000 years, but we'll get over it because the archetypal values have their own forces and the uh, quantum science has come about. So the worldview is about to change. The experimental data is taking care of that. Uh, quantum uh, neuroscience, neuroscience data, when we apply quantum um, concepts to it, um, makes it very, very clear that what the ancient people proposed, the spiritual tradition, that we have besides our ego self, there is another non-local self, we call it quantum self, but transpersonal psychologists call it transpersonal self, spiritual traditions call it spirit, that is very active in us, and that can be measured in our brain, and we can cultivate it. In other words, brain not only acts in its local ego mode, but also in a non-local mode, which the entire brain is involved, and not only involved, but in synchrony with various parts, so this being a verifiable um, concept, this idea of a synchronous, non-local self, uh, sooner or later it's going to be accepted by scientists. Sooner or later it's going to have a force of transformation among people. Right now this force is active within about 15% of humanity, but very soon, as soon as the worldview changes, many more people will look into it. And that's how morality will come back in our society. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that you know we we really have a crisis. Uh, you know, in my thirty six year career as a healthcare uh, professional, I'm, I'm licensed as a holistic health practitioner. That's what I do. But uh, you know, I point out to my students and to my patients: look, every drug that's ever been taken off the market, and almost everything that's uh, had to be removed from the public because of its dangers was first approved by science. And I've talked to scientists who said morality is not our concern. Our job is to invent things. It's up to you guys to figure out how to use them or to the manufacturers 
how to use them. And that seems like such a terrible cop-out to me. I know. I know. Because when you look at science as a material enterprise, then you cannot see the bigger picture. But as soon as you allow consciousness into the picture, as quantum physics compels us to do, then things open up. And that's what I'm saying, that things are opening up and we are finding new avenues for healing people, for therapizing people, for getting rid of their emotional traumas through concepts like vital energy, which is finding measurements with uh, functional MRI. We are now taking pictures of not only the brain, but also the mental states of the brain. We are getting real measurements of how mind works, how creativity works. So all these things are happening and it is so exciting, you know, new models of healing, new ways of healing. Uh, Valentin, I'll shortly talk to you about this, the quantum healing. It is it is very exciting, Paul. We, you cannot keep a avalanche from coming. You cannot keep a flood. When the river overflows, it just the current sweep everything away. That's what will happen very soon. It seems as though uh, that these very issues we're talking about were were part of the reason that Wolfgang Pauli and Carl Jung had such an intimate friendship and relationship to explore a lot of these concepts, uh, having read the book of uh, Jung and Pauli's exchanges. Yeah. And, and so it's nice to see that even back then, and having looked at the writings of many of the scientists in the day, there was... There was definitely, you know, even Max Planck talked about the the non-reality of matter as as the source. And it's it's funny how scientists today don't pay attention to what the founding scientists that were really more tabbed in had to say. Absolutely. That this is a major problem that we have developed such a short memory of things. And it seems a lot of that comes from the Copenhagen interpretation. Yeah, a lot of it because Copenhagen interpretation never really gave up on uh, the intrigues of quantum physics. They didn't allow us to completely forget that quantum physics, although it, they could have sided with the statistical interpretation and the complete materialist, but they always left the fact that, yes, there is a mystery here. Copenhagen interpretation is not the final answer, but there is some mystery here which you are not solving. And eventually, there is hope that these mysteries will be solved. And that's precisely what happened. The mysteries were solved. And now we have a full-blown science of consciousness. It's, you know, all, a lot of this that we're talking about is, goes right back to what I've read many times. And that is the concept in quantum physics and in universities where when students start asking these questions, they get the standard answer, shut up and calculate. Yes, because otherwise you won't get any job. <laughs> and, 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 and thus we have the saying, money is the root of all evil. <laughs> yes. But you know, um, yeah, this, is, uh, this misgiving is going away. When uh, Valentina were, and I were establishing this university, she just mentioned, uh, it, it, it's a, really a university of technology, already existing university in, in India, who has given us the avenue of creating a new department of quantum science of health, prosperity, and happiness. So this is what we are doing. But when we are doing it, initially we have a little bit of trepidation if we are going to get any students. 
but it's amazing. We have started with some 42 students, and this is uh, tremendous. This is our first offering. And even well, I think it's it's beautiful. I'm grateful that you're both doing that. There's something I want to bring up with you that I've never heard discussed, and I've read literally hundreds of books. I have a 35 square, 100 square foot house here that's almost full of books. I got about a half a million dollars worth of books in my library. I've, I've studied anatomy and physiology extensively in all aspects of science relating to the body from psychology to physiology to energy medicine, etc. So I want to bring something up with you to get your opinion on this. And this has to do with the constant reference to the brain as the thinking part or the source of consciousness. And one of the things, there's a couple of things I want to share before you answer so that you really understand what my what my proposition is here. First of all, Rudolf Steiner said, anything with an inside and an outside has a soul. Second, Steiner showed that when you look at the con- construct of anything in nature from single-celled organisms to plants to animals to human beings, he described how the, the number of membranes within the organism's body had an influence on how conscious that being was. And he described how the cosmic vibrations penetrate the cell structures and the layers of fascia. And to use a shamanic term, every membrane in our body acts like a drum skin. And that vibration resonates within the body, which produces fields of information. Then you look at the embryology of the brain. And what people forget all the time is that the the embryologically skin emerges from the same tissue as brain. So the point I'm driving at is people keep referring to the brain as it's the only thinking part, and then it's some kind of isolated uh, modular organ. But I really believe that the brain and the body are one system and that they shouldn't be separated like that. I'd like to hear your take on that. Well, um, I have to change a little bit of your language and a little bit of Rudolf Steiner's language. But the essence is about the same. What you are trying to say is not so much about the word uh, brain, mind, soul, etc. Those words are um, have become kind of materialistic in their connotation. So what we have to do is to uh, invent new words, discover new words, which are already there in the literature, but in the spiritual literature. So if we now use the word consciousness, then um, what you are really saying is that both the brain and the body, they both act as conduits or representations of consciousness in its various uh, potentialities that gives us experiences. In other words, brain is a special uh, representation maker, which not only represents the vital life that the body has, but also thinking. So we make brain very special because it brain organs help us think, which is a higher capacity in some sense. It's a more detailed cognitive capacity. But do the animals have cognition or don't they? Just because they don't have thinking, uh, we tend to think that they don't have cognitive power. But of course, anybody who has a pet knows that the animals, mammals certainly have cognitive power. So where did this cognitive power came from? That came from the fact that organs also can act as a representation maker for consciousness. And indeed, the heart, what Eastern psychology called heart chakra, 
or the navel with Japanese uh, psychology called Hara, these things are definitely are places where consciousness is represented as a self. This is why mystics, women, they constantly remind people that brain is not the only place where we can experience things. We can also experience it in our heart. And then going back all the way to a single cell, certainly a single cell by virtue of the membrane, that's where your concept of the membrane becomes important. It not only has a cellular nucleus, but it also has a membrane. And new evidence is suggesting that the membrane has cognitive proteins. And if you include consciousness in the equation, then the membrane, this power of uh, proteins uh, that help cognition and water uh, in the cytoplasm that can memorize, the living cell also can make a representation of consciousness. And it is that representation which we call life, which helps us to distinguish between life and non-life. So this way of thinking that Rudolf Steiner was one of the forebears of this kind of thinking, then others have also contributed. Carl Jung, you mentioned that's a major contributor. And now finally quantum physics brings all these visions together into a coherent science. Hi. In this podcast with theoretical physicist and spiritual icon Amit Goswami, one of my heroes, and Valentina Onasar, MD, we get deep into the challenges we face in the world today and how understanding the principles of quantum physics and using our intuition and creativity is what is needed to create viable solutions. To have a clear head and the use of our full powers of creativity, we all need healthy digestion, elimination, detoxification, and optimal metabolism. And Bioptimizer's product line is what I recommend to my patients, clients, and athletes. I've never found a better source of enzymes, probiotics, digestion support, and general gut and metabolic health than Bioptimizers. In fact, I highly recommend you listen to my excellent podcast with Wade Lightheart, episode 55. Wade is the co-founder of Bioptimizers, and listening to that podcast can really help you understand why Bioptimizers products are at the cutting edge of health and science and ideal for supporting your vitality and well-being. Wade was one of the few people probably ever to make it to Mr. Universe in bodybuilding as a vegetarian, and he really, really knows what he's doing. Living 4D with Paul Check listeners get a huge 27% discount on the upgraded digestion package consisting of four great Bioptimizers products that I use myself. Go to B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash number four, capital D, capital L, and use the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 10 on checkout for your discount. That's bioptimizers.com forward slash number four, capital D, capital L, all caps check 10 for your discount. Hope you enjoy the products. And as always, I love your feedback. Enjoy the podcast. Yes. And I'd like to expand on that because there's another issue that that uh, is a bit of a problem out there. I just recently did a series called The Honest Vegetarian where I looked at all the belief systems and isms around diet and, and the vegetarians, the vegans, the meat eaters, the carnivores, every everything. And I I talked a lot about what people don't realize about consciousness. So I'd like to share something with you. You just mentioned animals and the speculation as to whether animals are conscious. 
I am a practicing medicine man and spirit guide licensed through the Native American Council. I've conducted over 400 healing ceremonies in my career. I teach my students how to communicate with plants. I have had many tremendous learning experiences from plants and trees. Mm-hmm. And when you when you look at the fact that scientists have looked into the the spiritual brew ayahuasca, which I I am an ayahuascaro and I I know all about it and how to make it and have used it many times extensively. And when you talk to the shaman and you look at the history of ayahuasca, the shaman all say in every case when it comes to how did they figure out, and they've done mathematical calculations on the odds of how long it would take a human being wandering around in the jungle to figure out how to mix Banisteris carpi with Chilapunga or Chacruna to get the right mix of DMT and MAO inhibitors. And it's almost mathematically impossible to happen by chance. Mm -hmm. And all the shamans say the same thing. The plants teach us. And so I think that we have a lack of consciousness amongst scientific leaders and people that have these hard opinions about this, because when you actually look at the evidence, if you want to call it spiritual research, it's clear that plants are conscious. And when people ask me in my classes, how in the hell can we communicate with plants? I say, you need to pay attention to the fact that what science calls junk DNA (laughs) is all the DNA that is from our entire evolution. And we are all of that. And our junk DNA, and DNA to me is actually an antenna system that tunes into cosmic vibrations. And Itzhak Bentov himself showed diagrams in his book, Stalking the Wild Pendulum, showing that a human being's receptive capacity went all the way down to the base level of minerals and all the way up to God consciousness. And he was a very well-respected scientist. So I'd like to hear your comments on that. Well, um, you know, we have a very... um, very myopic view indeed in scientific maturity. Yes, plants definitely have consciousness and they talk to us in the language of these feelings. Um, For a science of feelings, um, we really have made a fantastic progress using quantum science and an idea that originally came from Rupert Sheldrake in terms of- Yes, I've I've studied him a lot. Yes, good. Uh, he gave us the concept of morphogenetic field, uh, which uh, governs the software that living beings, all living beings, plants, human beings, animals, all living beings, um, and some of that can be shared. So how do we communicate with plants? Because our softwares can become non-locally correlated, and our expansion then feels, our consciousness then feels expanded. So anyone has any doubt in this can take a uh, walk in the forest like you have taken many times. Now that's my favorite pastime. And any time we do that, the communication with plants become very clear in the form of an expansion of consciousness that takes place in us. The scientific materialist is a, at a huge disadvantage because those guys never experience any expansion of consciousness. They never have the opportunity of looking at a flower or taking a nature work or looking at the ocean with the right mind. They are completely lost in their rational thinking and mathematical thinking or the vision of dominating the world with the idea of scientific materialism. 
So yes. So you know what can we say? I sometimes feel a little sorry for this bunch because they are so lost in the power game. That yes, they do dominate the world with the power of materialist thinking, but it is only short-lived. It's a very short-lived because the world is in catastrophe, and people are realizing it more and more, and they will throw out this idea, this worldview, in favor of something that integrates the scientific worldview with the spiritual worldview and gives us a better scientific worldview. That's what quantum science is doing. Yes, and you know. For people that haven't looked into this, uh, you know, if you go all the way back to the research of Julius Chandler Bose, who in 1908 was doing very solid scientific research showing how conscious plants were, and I don't know if you're familiar with the scientist Philip Callahan, who was the first one to figure out that during solar flares, the sun could actually produce monopole photons that he identified as paramagnetic energy. And I've studied the uh, in the you know the effects of paramagnetic versus diamagnetic energy in farming and how it relates to tissue and, and the human respiratory system. But uh, Philip Callahan actually has right in his books he did uh, research showing that plants are not only conscious but they can move forward and backward in time and gave mathematical calculations to demonstrate that. My point is is there's a lot of great evidence out there. There's the you know the work of um, Cleve Baxter, who I actually did training with and, and it was from San Diego. There's so much out there that is being ignored that is absolutely essential, in my opinion, because the a lot of the destruction of nature is based on the belief systems produced by a scientific materialist paradigm. And the sad part is the most unconscious leaders are the ones that are having the greatest influence on humanity. And I think that's a serious problem right now. Yeah, this is the most serious problem. You just identified it. Many people think, you know, Donald Trump is the craziest man in America, but actually the scientific materialists are much more crazy. And so, but you know, right now we are in a situation where the entire human culture is suffering between two worldviews. The old religious worldview has not served us well either. So now we have gone completely the other side. The pendulum has swung in a completely materialistic pattern of life where we don't believe any morality. We don't believe any kind of uh, spiritual changes to make. Uh, but this too shall pass because within science, as we both are discussing, the ideas of quantum spirituality are arising and we are making people conscious that yes, there were some wrong things in the old spiritual tradition because they did not see the complete picture. And similarly, there are also many wrong things, more wrong things actually in the scientific materialist picture, although it has given something that we didn't have before, namely a certain amount of uh, ability of coping with our environment and producing unprecedented wealth with which you can deal with poverty someday when we become more conscious, and we will, because of scientific advancement, the science that we are talking about, quantum science and quantum spirituality. So things will change, and we should not dwell on the difficulties too much, because these difficulties are very short-lived. You know, at most, there is just a few decades before the new science will come about, and the so experimental is so convincing that nobody can deny it anymore. You know, uh, 
I'm inspired to share something with you. First, I want to tell you, I'm often accused of being a cult leader for teaching the things we're talking about right here. And that's how uh, the fear of scientific materialists who don't want the uh, box to be open beyond uh, what they're comfortable with attack people like me. And and uh, I wouldn't doubt if you get your own labels uh, for, for the way you teach. But, uh, you know, it's... Um, uh, I had a question I was going to ask you, but it slipped out of my mind. So I'm going to ask you my next question. Um, you know, you discuss intuition a lot in your writings, and we've talked a little bit about here. Could you give a definition of intuition from a quantum spirituality perspective? Yes, this is a very, very good question. And, and the answer, of course, is that you know, we get stimulus from the material world, we recognize them very clearly, we call them physical stimuli. And then we have a subtle software that we call our mind and vital. And then another kind of stimulus, they don't come from the material world that we experience to be outside of us, but this other world, this stimuli, they come from consciousness itself. They are directive for consciousness as hints or encouragement to see that there are more potentialities to explore and change the world and ourselves accordingly. So intuitions are special messages from consciousness with the values that consciousness as a whole, its science, is telling us to take the world to evolve towards. In other words, they are the messages via which human beings should find their ways and directions to evolve. These values are literally, archetypal values are literally, and I'll name them, some of them, it will become clear how they are evolving. For example, take justice. That's an archetype. We have historically been very prejudiced against uh, many of the factions of humanity, um, prejudices like racism. We have been very prejudiced like sexism. We have been very prejudiced against homosexuality, of course. But all these prejudices are now pretty much history, although it continues. I shouldn't be so uh, blunt about that either. But still, uh, we are in a very good shape in terms of how we understand the archetype of justice. Our understanding of the archetype of love is almost an all-time high. We were so violent even 100 years ago. Now look at, we have not fought a major world war in quite some time. And in spite of the craziness of some of our leaders, we are not going to fight them. And so um, I think the ways that human beings operate are changing. These archetypes are fine recognition in our lives. And with quantum science, to have an actual method to investigate them, this is what creativity is all about. I wrote a book on that, you know, quantum. Yes, I read it. It's very good. <laughs> yes. So we, we are now well into investigating the archetypes and the uh, experience of intuition in a major way. And some new ideas are also entering. Uh, Valentina and I are often get very enthusiastic about what we call supramental intelligence, archetypal intelligence. And this is going to come to us. This is a level of living 
uh, a level of intelligent living that takes us beyond the capacities that mind and feeling uh, have given us. So we are yes. very excited. And of course, people like you who are maverick leaders of this new um, avenue, a new um, pasture for human endeavor will appreciate this. And in a way, you are harboring us from this. So it is really enormous time. In spite of all this disaster that is going on at the same time, all the excitement that is going on also, although it is kind of small compared to the vast attention that the calamities are drawing, this, uh, this activity is significant and substantial. Yes. You know, I have a, uh, I, my intuition is that archetypes are the root language of consciousness. How do you feel about that statement? I completely agree. Archetypes are basic to consciousness. Archetypes are the fundamental elements of consciousness that consciousness wants to be manifested on earth. You know, Teilhard de Chardin and Rishi Aurobindo had similar views in the last century. I'm glad that you have a similar vision. Yeah, I've studied Aurobindo quite a bit. I've studied Ken Wilber's collected works. I've studied Carl Jung's collected works for the last 25 years. Uh-huh. These things yeah. are, they're all essential to, you know, people come to me from all over the world with every kind of problem you, you can imagine. So I've been faced with riddles my whole career and 36 years is enough time to study a lot of things. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I'd like to talk about uh, a little bit here you know, Jung stated that intuition, as we know, as we've discussed, I'm saying this just to help the, the listeners follow along, but Jung identified co- uh, intuition as one of the four functions of consciousness because it provides information that we cannot get from thinking, feeling, or sensation. And I know that we're all endowed with intuition, even if it's unconscious. Uh, for in other words, people that don't consciously realize they're using intuition are still they still have it. It's just being either repressed or held in their unconscious. So I'm curious to know if you feel that the rasc- uh, the rapidly escalating rates of anxiety, fear, depression, and suicide may partially be a response to people's unconscious intuition that we're destroying nature, each other, and the way we're relating to each other in the world is unsustainable, and therefore they feel trapped, depressed, and don't feel empowered to make changes or know how to go about it. How do you feel about that possibility? Right. Uh, Amit wants me to answer that. So I'll try. Uh, Yes, indeed. There's a lot of uh, crisis nowadays. It's even more and more. And a lot of um, actually many, many cases of depression which are hidden, which is even more dangerous. You see a person coming at work, smiling, and the second day you hear he killed himself. Right. And the thing is that we live in this world where it's so much consumerism, so much do, do, do only, and without uh, giving any kind of space to this unconscious processing and to simply being as well. So we kind of, we become like machines because of so much information processing, right? And we lose from track the meaning processing, which goes again, actually together hand in hand with the archetypes, with our dharma, with why, why we are here for. And I tell you from a medical perspective, uh, people with uh, severe uh, situations of health, such as advanced states of cancer, which eventually many of them, they pass through these spontaneous uh, healings, which is through divine grace. 
Of course, there is also this creative process, which we describe in the quantum healing, quantum science, in a very clear way, quite easy to understand once you really want to understand. But again, so people which go through this um, state of divine grace and what's happening, all of them, what, what they do when they really heal, and it's again, there are many cases, it's not to be underestimated, uh, they all they change their way of living, you know, and they all they discover something higher for which it's worth to live for. They discover why they are here, you know, what is that unique quality for which they they are naturally striving, not not in a stressing way, but really they they discover something higher which they lost from sight before, you know, and that's that's kind of the part of the meaning which has to come in the picture. Otherwise, you have all these cases of Alzheimer and dementia at a very early age, 45 years old nowadays, you know. In the past, it was much later. But nowadays, you have so many cases exactly for this reason, because uh, unfortunately, the society is stimulating, overstimulating our poor brains and creating all these cases of addiction which is internet addiction is the same like with the heroin addiction, for example, no? And then all this, you're just uh, hooked up on your phone, on your TV, and you just let your life pass through your fingers. Yes. You know, I'm going to ask you both a question that I didn't write into the, to my uh, list of questions I wanted to cover today, but uh, I'm curious to hear your answer. Having studied Jung extensively and interviewed uh, James Hollis, who is an amazing Jungian analyst, and in my interview with James Hollis, he said that you know whenever a culture's myth breaks down, then you start getting all sorts of isms, and he described how consumerism is sort of the surrogate myth of the day. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to hear from you guys, what do you feel is the myth that we're transitioning into, and that consumerism is really, if we consider it sort of a a coping mechanism. What's yeah. the myth that what's the myth we need to embody for our own, you know, growth, development and survival? I don't think we need any new myth. We just need the old myths to come in force back again. I always in my transformative education classes on quantum science emphasize how important the myths are in our life. We have given up on myths is the problem, in other words. And therefore, this pseudo-myth, which is the myths are not important, but making new myths like money is everything, those are the myths um, in the sense of the, the derogative sense. Myths in the true sense is actually the paths that we can follow to the true, real truth. Truth of the artist, truth of the um, musician, truth of the lover, they are uh, shrouded in these myths, transformative myths that exist, such as hero's journey. That's a very major myth for everyone, even the scientist. The literal truth that the scientist looks for is the truth only for the workings of the hardware of the universe. But the universe, in the form of the human being, living part of the universe, not, does not live on hardware alone. They also have software. And that software is what the artist, the musician, the lover, they are searching for in terms of making new programs, giving new meanings with the investigation of these archetypes that are going to generate these new meanings. 
So the myths are attracting our attention to this archetypal investigation. We don't need necessarily new myths, although I'm sure new myths will come, and some already have come, but the revival of the old myths are very, very, very important. This is what my view is. Valentina? Well, okay, go ahead. Yeah, obviously we, nowadays you see in each of the nations, they even, we even lost all kind of traditions which had so much value. And again, going towards becoming robots instead of um, being just beautiful humans. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, are you familiar with James Carse, either of you? No. No. Okay. He, uh, both of you, I can tell you, would find this book very in- interesting and deep and probably stimulate all sorts of creative thinking that might be useful to you. The book sure. is called Finite and Infinite Games by James Kars. Okay. And in in his book, he one of the definitions of a myth that he gives is that myth is a story that tells itself. So it seems to me that if that is a working definition of myth, that consciousness itself is trying to teach us about ourselves through the story that's being told but it also seems that some of us just aren't getting the story or we're misinterpreting the story, which is leading to a lot of the issues we're describing and that the mystics and the saints and the sages are the ones that are actually picking up the real story that's being told by itself. Yes. Unfortunately, in the um, worldview of quantum science, the distinction between sages and the scientists is rapidly becoming one and one of that of a truth seeker or truth seer. So in this, you know, way, oh, this, it's just, yeah, go ahead. I was, I, I'll, I'll share. A convergence of the two ways of doing things. The scientists of the modern times, this materialist scientists, they're an aberration on science. They even have denigrated the basic commodity of science, namely lookers of truth into the concept of relative truth and look at what that is creating in our society. To no two um, persons can agree on anything, even on facts, because uh, we are told truth is relative, my truth versus your truth, whom should we trust? We cannot trust anybody. So this yeah. is, it needs to change, and it is, it is going to change very radically. You were yes. right. Um, this mythology is the history of the self. It is the science of the self. Self science, software science cannot be described as hardware law like mathematical statements. They have to be stated as a progressive unfolding of a truth that can only be stated as a progressive unfolding of truth. No other way exists for it to be discovered, except people taking quantum leaps and making an approximate description of the whole truth. So truth is a journey. Any archetype is a journey towards finding its real nature. We can never give it at a complete uh, form at any given time. And therefore, myths will always be important for earthly humans because we cannot make complete representations of these archetypes. We can only look at them through our mind and through our feelings, and that those representations are always going to be incomplete. 
You know, our our discussions here about scientists, uh, the more tapped in ones, realizing that the mystics were on to things and that we're really just trying to figure out mathematically, so to speak, what the mystics knew all along. One time I was reading some writings by Fred Hoyle and he said something quite profound. He said, at the end of one of my mathematical equations, I, f- I expect to find a Rishi any time now. And I think that says it all. Yeah. Very good. Very good words to speak. Yeah. Great. Yeah, I read and I deeply enjoyed your book, Quantum Creativity, as I alluded to earlier. Einstein said you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that created it. It seems that we're caught in antiquated misstructures, largely imparted and maintained by fundamentalist approaches to religion and scientific materialism. And research shows that about 70% of people are in the traditional structure stage of conscious development and that such belief systems are closed and do not respond to logic, truth, or even scientific facts that could change the paradigm. My question for you is, how do we inspire such people to get to, to, to creatively explore ideas and concepts that are perceived challenges to their belief system? And how do you handle a situation where, how would you handle the situation we're in right now if you were elected president of the United States? Well, you know, this is such a good question. We have to take the people away, and this applies to, uh, especially to cultures like the American culture and British culture, the culture that we sometimes call waspish culture, because this waspish culture depends too much on rational thinking. Rational yes. thinking is not or cannot be, by its very nature, any room for non-locality or expansion of consciousness. In fact. Uh, You and I can very easily tell that any rational thinker, because we have been there too, becomes contracted in consciousness. So this is the basic problem. So I would just go about and do my best for opening these people initially to feelings. Feelings are very important because we can be so easily non-local with use of feeling. Like if you try to love somebody, immediately see that it is not as hard. You can expand your consciousness. So, of course, if you say no to love and equate love with sex, then you miss that. And all scientific theories, of course, are completely insistent. There is no such thing as love. It's only sex. But if you don't believe it, and I think majority of people still will not miss out on love just because scientific materialists from Harvard are telling them so, so they are willing to experiment. And if we can bring the power of love in the life of uh, the people that we have, even uh, I think most of them, not all of course, but most of them will see that expanded consciousness is a very useful way to, very rewarding way to live. And that's how we'll bring changes. Um, in other words, I don't know if you watch the Democrat debate uh, on the uh, television, there was a uh, called Marion Williamson, and she did mention love, and she uh, got about 2% of Democrats to support her. So this is very good news. People can mention love in a Democratic Party debate. So that's, uh, you know, if you ask me, that's fantastic achievement uh, for a person, for a well, world of scientific materialists and rational thinkers. 
So things. It's interesting. <laughs> Sorry, it's in. It's interesting that you said two percent because Ken Wilber's research shows that only two percent of the world population is at the integral level of consciousness, and only two percent responded positively to Marianne Williamson's mention of love, and that that's an interesting correlation. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, just just to sort of cap this off, because I I, I really got I got to hit hit get Valentino Valentina's uh, view on this. You know, as a therapist who's who's really looked into these issues a lot, there's a saying: "Feelings buried alive never die." And if we are inherently one with consciousness, it means that the truth is resonating with, within us all the time. So is the archetype of good beauty. So it seems to me that a lot of the the physical health challenges and body challenges that people are have can be because they're repressing their feelings in order to fit into a sick cultural mythology and mindset. Does that make sense to you? Well, it makes a lot, of course, and uh, it's the whole paradigm in uh, health has to be changed as well. Because if you look attentive, you see that it's a pessimist uh, paradigm. Like you are looking over disease and you forget about what you have. You forget about the state of health and you forget you're not grateful for what you have anyway and you lose the connection with who you are. Yes. And you said something about oneness, which is a bit misused in spirituality. Everybody says we are one. We are not really one only unless we actualize it. You know, and right. it's kind of active love and it's no locality, but these are not, it's not only words unless you really actualize it. So, well, I, I think the oneness is always there, but otherwise God wouldn't be God. Sure. You know, the, yeah, Suf, the first, the first dictum, the, the first principle of Sufism is there is no God, but God, I worship everything and everyone. So I think it's really the ego that's that's uh, in the way of actualizing what's always present. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. a thinking ego. Yes, it's a thinking ego. But uh, it's funny. Yeah. Also learned from the from Professor Goswami and the quantum science that actually is not like usually we are taught in the spiritual traditions that you have to get rid of the ego, which get wins by the way from the medical perspective also get rid of immunity and of yeah like, yeah. So you need to have it harmonized and you need to have all that beautiful character in order to grow as well, if not what to do. Yes. I tell my students, you don't want to get rid of the ego. It's what creates the subject object split that allows you to have the experience of love. I I define love as the flow of energy and information through empathic and compassionate connection to self and or other. Okay. So if we if we didn't have an ego, we would not be able to experience the love. We'd be right back into non-duality and and there and therefore you'd be prior to the the, the genesis event. Yes. Love, I, love I, anyway is the most fundamental and the most for me is the 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 most powerful force in the universe and the most transforming as well. But many times, you know, people are even afraid of love just because of that, because it's it's uh, like a bomb, you know, it's like atomic bomb for the ego, yes. for all the limits which we keep uh, so dearly, you know. I also define love as consciousness becoming aware of itself. Mm-hmm. That's a good one too. Mm-hmm. Well, can- well, listen, I, I know you guys have to run. Would you like to just share where people can find more about your, your university and, and, and any other websites or things you'd like to direct people to? Hey, thank you. So it's um, the website, amitgosvami.org. And there you find it's Vishvalam is the name of the university. 
quantum activism visualium. Yeah, you'll find it there on the activism.org. That's excellent. Anything else? No, that's it. And uh, we are very grateful that you interviewed us. And hopefully we will find time to look up for the book Quantum Spirituality. And that truly... Oh, I, I've I've already started reading it. It's fantastic, and I hope you enjoy James Carse's book, Finite Infinite Games. And I'm I would really love to to interview you guys again. I have a lot of interesting questions that we could talk about. So I'll, I'll work through Sarah, and hopefully we can maintain a relationship and participate together in helping awaken more people to the deeper truths of life, love, and reality. Okay. Thank we'll you. Thank you, guys. Lots of love. I'm very grateful for all that you share in the world. Good night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guests, Professor Amit Goswami and Dr. Valentina Onisor. Their latest book, Quantum Spirituality, is available on Amazon and in other good bookstores. You can follow Professor Ganeswamy and Dr. Onisor's work on Twitter and Facebook at Quantum Activist or online at amitgoswami.org. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and at the Czech Institute's brand new streaming media site, chekiva.com. Music